Welcome to the Open Door Podcast. My name is Anthony. This is a conversation with Sue Chung, an award-winning children's author and illustrator. She has several books to her name, Chill with Lil, Far From Home, Bob and Rob, When Angus Met Alvin, and her most recent success, Chinglish. It's a truly exciting time for her, not only because she's releasing another book in August called Maddie Yip, A Guide to Life, but Chinglish is being adapted for TV. It's an honour to have spoken to her during all of this, but as expected, details about the production cannot be revealed yet. Instead, in this episode, we talk about her relationship with children's illustration and writing, and her own life that inspired Chinglish, a story centering around a young British-born Chinese girl growing up in the UK with her family. And, at the end, she gives a piece of advice to her son, which she never got when she was his age. Give it a listen to find out more. As usual, the episode timestamps are in the description, but without further delay, this is Sue Chung. Sue, thank you very much for coming onto the show and congratulations on your second book, which is going to be, not a second book, um, a new book actually, because you've written a few books, coming out in August called Maddie Yip, A Guide to Life. Is there anything you can tell us about the book? Thanks very much for having me on uh, to start with. I'm very excited to be on here. Um, Maddie Yip, yeah, so um, this is the book that I've always kind of wanted to read as a kid, I think. So when, I, so when I was really, really young, we didn't have any books in the house. So me and my brother used to go and buy comics from the newsagent. And that's the only thing we kind of read up to about the age of eight was comics. And we ended up with a pile that was like taller than us in the end. Because um, we devoured everything, like the Dandy, the Beano, Wizard and Chips, a- any comic that was in the newsagent we bought. So that's kind of stuck with me. The, the fact that they gave me so much joy and laughter as a kid kind of stuck with me and I've always wanted to write something similar of my own so that's how kind of Maddie It was born. My, my publisher asked me if I wanted to write a series for kids that were like eight years and older and I was like that's perfect that's like the perfect audience for this kind of comic book um, that I really want to write so I created the character uh, Maddie It. Uh, she's kind of like based on myself a little bit because she's just really silly and no matter how challenging life gets, she just gets on with it. And um, she always sees the lighter side of things in life as well. And I think as well, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a little bit older and I managed to get myself a library card, I used to get books out that were like Roald Dahl, Enid Blyton, C.S. Lewis. And then it wasn't until like in the early 80s that the book came along that changed my life and that was Adrian Mole by Sue Townsend. Because up till then I couldn't relate to any of the characters really and then Adrian Mole was just this hapless teenager who was an absolute outcast and failed at everything and I was like that's me! Oh my god! And so it it was just a revelation and uh, Sue Townsend is like one of my biggest influencers to this day. Um, because the approach that she takes writing it as well is it just she just makes everything so hilarious but but so painfully honest at the same time um it was just so real for me not fantasy but just real and that's what i wanted 
So with Madden Yip, I wanted to kind of create the same sort of thing, uh, like a real character who does real things and gets it wrong a lot of the time, but it's okay. And also, I didn't see any characters back then when I was a kid who I saw in myself as an as a ethnic minority. I didn't see any, there was no Chinese characters. So I thought, that, you know, it would just being natural as, a, as a, an author of colour, it would be natural for me to make this character um, Chinese. So she's actually, Maddie Yip has got a Chinese dad and an English man and a Chinese granddad that lives in the garage conversion. And, uh, and they are, and I really as well, because I actually, I'm from a very working class background and I spent uh, quite a few years living on a council estate up north. So Maddie Yip is based up north and they're very working class and they're very sort of like salt of the earth, down to earth. A little bit like, I don't know if you've ever watched um, Shameless. <laughs> shameless but for kids it's kind of like that so so all of those elements are kind of like piled into to Maddie Yip and it's it's just um yeah and that's out in August and uh and I can't wait it's very exciting yeah I'm excited too yeah it's very it's very heavily illustrated as well so it's got all of those sort of comic cartoon sort of influences in there as well so I, I at last got a chance to kind of draw those sort of comic strips I wanted well thank you so much for telling us that story and that actually leads into my second question quite nicely because you said when you were growing up, you, you bought a lot of comics, you know, Beano and stuff like that. Stuff I read too when I was quite young. I just want to ask you a question. Why illustrate and write children's literature anyway? Is it, does it stem from that childhood moment of loving comic books and you wanted to do that? Or was there another reason you wanted to go into children's literature? Yeah, so that is one of the reasons because of the reading all those comics when I was younger. And also my first love has always been art for as long as I can remember, I've always drawn. Wherever I could find this, like a, a blank space, it was drawn on. So I'm talking about the walls in the house and everything, yeah. <laughs> so anywhere where I could find a bit of blank paper or a blank space, it would be drawn all over. So my, I think I was born with that natural propensity <laughs> to just be an artist. And so that kind of matched with the whole sort of comic thing because it was like stories told in pictures. And then when I had my son, when he was a toddler, I started getting picture books out for him from the library and reading them to him at bedtime and stuff. And I just thought to myself, it kind of um, reignited that sort of desire for creating something like that. And so I thought to myself, I had it in my head like, I really want to make something like this. I really want to do a picture book or something like that. Just as a sort of a, a challenge, I guess just so that I had something tangible in front of me that I could say, look, this is, I've done it, you know, I've, I've done my picture book. So that's why. I, it was just a dream that I wanted to fulfil. And it's come true. Yeah, it has. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where if, if it never leaves your mind, then it has to manifest because otherwise it will never go away, you know? You'll always just be thinking about it. Well, thank you. I, I really needed to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that, it's something I wanted to ask as well. What's the process of your creation? Do, do the illustrations come first before the writing or does the writing come first? So the story and then the illustrations follow. What's the process for you? Well, the first thing that I always do is come up with the characters. They have to be really sort of clear in my mind because once you've got the characters and, you know, their name, their age, you know, what they're into and all that kind of thing, then the writing comes easier after that because you've got somebody to base it on. And then once you start writing, 
then the rest of the pictures should be quite easy because then you're just picking out scenes where the characters already exist. So that's the order of things I normally do it in. Are the characters... I know Chinglish is sort of partly a true story. Do the best characters come from people you've met in real life or are the best characters, do you think, are people you imagined? Yes, there's always... I'm always, um, you know, in everyday life... I'm a very curious person and I do take note of people's characteristics and personalities and, you know, things like that. So I'm always taking mental note. And then when I create my characters, they will always have a little bit of somebody I've met in the past to them. Because there's now so queer as folk, right? (laughs) And so you could never even make some of these things up. They actually exist. People actually have these personality traits. And so it's a gold mine out there. You'd be totally missing out if you did not take mental notes of things that you come across when you meet people. And I do that all the time. They're the best source of um, information for, for mm. creating characters, definitely. Yeah. Real, real life is crazy enough, um, let alone imagination. Exactly. <laughs> so sometimes, you, sometimes people you meet and stories you hear are just perfect for stories. Yeah. Yeah. You could not make it up. <laughs> <laughs> and... Congratulations on the success of Chinglish as well. Thank you. Um, which has won the Diverse Book Awards. Um, you know, like like many others, it's really resonated with a lot of people, as well as lots of British Chinese people who have experienced the same things. How has the journey been so far since the launch of Chinglish? It's just been absolutely crazy because, first of all, the reaction that I got from Chinglish was totally unexpected. When I, when I was... The whole journey's been a bit weird, actually, because um, I didn't want to write the book in the first place. And then my agent persuaded me because he knows what he's talking about. I mean, I was, I, was, I'm, I was still kind of, like, new to the whole publishing thing. And he thought that, you know, some of the issues that I talked about in the book would resonate with a lot of the readers and I'd be helping them, ultimately. I never really thought about it that way. All I could think about at that, at that moment was there's no way I am going to tell my story to anybody because... I'm so ashamed of it and I've spent so long just hiding it away that to then release it to the world would be just the worst thing in the world because then everybody would know about my past, my shameful past. And then I, I would feel like all those barriers that I've, I've kind of built up would just come tumbling down and everyone would see me for who, for who I really am and all this kind of thing. I felt very vulnerable at that moment. And I said, no, I do not want to write this. <laughs> And he was like, why don't you just write me a couple of paragraphs and see how you go? So I was like, yeah, okay, maybe I could just send him some of the really funny anecdotes. I'm not going to tell him any of the horrible stuff because I don't want anyone to know about the horrible stuff. So I I wrote a couple of um, paragraphs about, A, the time my sister hoovered the hamster up, um, which is always a, a good party piece. Everybody always ends up killing themselves laughing about that. And then, you know, our typical Christmas which was basically just my mum shoving a lobster into a wok, and that was the only difference between any other day. Um, so anyway, I wrote those, sent them over, and he was like, oh my God, these are brilliant! Because not only... Because I, I, previous to that, I was only just writing... Um, not only, but I was writing picture books for younger kids, which is um, normally about a 1,000 words or less. And so I never had the experience of writing for older kids. So first of all, I was quite surprised because he said that the stories were funny and were worthy of kind of putting into a book and then secondly um 
the fact that, uh, that I could actually write for older kids, which was a surprise. So he said, oh, I'd like you to write the whole book. And I'm like, okay. And in my mind, I was thinking this would be a book aimed at maybe like eight to 12 year olds. I'll just keep it all dead funny and, and that'll be it. And then as I was writing it, about a third of the way through, uh, my agent said, why don't you try being a bit more honest and, um, and just write about some of the, the less lighthearted moments. And that's when I thought, oh, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> uh, this is what I really wanted to try and avoid. But by then I kind of like got so kind of entrenched in it that it became almost like like a therapy because I was sort of now I'd started unearthing everything. I thought I might as well dig deeper and it might be okay. And yes, if this book's going to help people, then I'll do it. The pain of doing this digging will be worth it. And do you know what? He turned out to be absolutely right because... The amount of people that have messaged me from all different cultures and backgrounds relating to the topics discussed, which are things like mental health, domestic violence, child abuse, um, racism, bullying. They've, people have said how much this book's helped them in that way. And then there's the other side of it, which is the ESEA um, community, and especially the Chinese diaspora and the British Chinese, who have been through the same experiences of growing up in a takeaway or restaurant environment and um, having those same shared experiences, some of them which are quite actually (laughs) quite distressing, because I'm not going to lie, the immigrant experience is so hard and it's never going to be entirely a fairy story. So I know that this book directly has helped so many people because they're messaging me and telling me that from all over the world. And I didn't know that this book would open up that conversation because I didn't know it was one to open up in the first place. When I wrote the book, I actually thought, and when I was growing up, I actually thought that I was like a handful of of people that were going through this experience of being a kid, being made to work in the takeaway at a very young age, being exposed to things like the racism from the customers and fights that broke out, having to call the police because I'm the only one that could, could speak English. And also the identity thing as well, you know, being a British Chinese kid, not fitting in at home from being too Western and not fitting in at school for being too Chinese. And then on top of all of that, just general teenage angst, (laughs) just everything mashed up together was just so hideous. So for me to then find out that all of these other people had gone through the same thing as me and also thought they were all alone going through it, it's just quite amazing. I've had quite a few messages that have actually been so much more traumatising than my own childhood. And it's, it's kind of a little bit, it puts everything into perspective. So I, I'm glad that I can help in some small way. I'm glad that this book has helped all of these people, no, no matter mm. how small. I don't, I don't think it was small at all. I think it was a big impact, actually. And it's nice to read but another person's experience that reflects quite accurately, well, save for some nuances, but quite accurately to what you're experiencing, because it's almost like a validation that what you're feeling is okay to feel that way, because it happened to other people too. It's not just you. And I, it, when I was reading the book, um, it felt like I was being personally addressed, actually, in the book. Really? And, it, you know, as you mentioned before, there weren't many 
sort of ethnic minority characters growing up and reading reading about their lives. And this was the first time I've read about something that was close to me. So thank you very much for doing that, for, for doing this for us. But I just want to touch back on what you said about what you said to your publisher and what you thought about, you know, digging back to your past. You don't want people reading it. Has the positive reception of the book changed your mind about that? Changed your mind about how you look at your past? Yeah, I mean, I've... <sighs> I spent about 15 years reading self-help up to now to try and resolve all of the issues that I had. So actually, looking back at my past now, I'm kind of detached from it. Whereas before I went into the whole personal development thing, I was very stuck in it still. And I couldn't kind of get myself separated from it. So writing Chinglish in a way was easier after I'd done all of that sort of... um, self-healing because I could sort of detach myself from it um there, there were there were still a few instances that I thought I'd dealt with that I'd obviously hadn't because it did bring up some very sort of strong emotion in me um, especially the scenes of um of abuse domestic violence so you know writing Chinglish has been very kind of purging for me so I, I really I, I kind of look at the past now as, as happening to somebody else. It's almost as if it, it was somebody else. There, there's still certain things that I, I really... Things like um, the scene where I get my head shoved down the toilet and, and flushed by my dad. I, that, I can talk about it now and, and it's almost like it's happened to somebody else. But things like that still haunt me slightly. Because you can never get over how somebody can do that to another person. Do you know what I mean? So just from a sort of like a human empathy feeling element, um, I kind of feel for that child that got that done to them. But yeah, I mean, overall, I can talk about it quite sort of comfortably now and know that it's something that is in the past and it's gone and it's done with, it's been dealt with. Yeah, and... Correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned in another interview that living in the UK, you got to compare family dynamics with, you know, the the white British people with their families and the dynamics of your family at home. And this is something I thought about a lot, because when I was younger, I used to go around my white British friend's house quite a lot for dinner. And we'd be sitting around the dinner table, they'd be having a nice conversation, laughing. And then in my mind, I'll be thinking, this is so strange. Why doesn't my family do this? And being a kid, you 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 can't do anything but compare. Yeah. And you start feeling resentful. I, I know I did when I was growing up. Why my parents were working like this? Why why didn't we do what they did? You know, sitting around the table and having a having a good time. Mm. And I think it's now I come to realise it's just not just culture, but actually I think it's just culture because as you said before, being an immigrant is quite hard living that life. And there's a passage that I just want to read to you and just get your thoughts on it, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. So this was um, about the main character in Chinglish, Zhou Kwan, and her immigrant Chinese parents' reaction to Simon, who is Zhou's older brother, and him getting his O-level grades, which are seven A's and a B, which is quite good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a good achievement. Okay, so the excerpt goes as this, so I quote, No other parents I know will just shrug off their kid like that. Simon worked his socks off for those results. He was dead proud but he couldn't care less. Maybe dad was jealous that his son had found a way to a better life. I'm sure mum doesn't even know there is an option for a better life. But in the end, 
I put it down to them both being emotionally stunted. Close quote. On the, on the jacket of the book, you mentioned that this was partly a true story. Was this a specific experience that happened in your own life? Yes, it was, yeah. Our parents, um, they didn't really care or seemed to care about our education. Everything was about the takeaway and um, their hope was that we'd take the business over when they retired or when we left school, whichever came first. It was this, as if they didn't even know what went on in school. They never really once asked about it ever. So we just did our own thing and uh, we just knew that they would never be interested. But it was very difficult not having that support. It was difficult for our parents to not join in with the dreams that we had as kids. I mean, just from watching them go through the stress of working 14 hour days and only having Christmas day off for the entire year, that was, you know, it was in our faces that we would never follow in their footsteps because we knew that we could get a better life for ourselves given the right sort of education. We worked all of that out for ourselves. I mean, don't get me wrong, I totally respect them for coming over to England and starting a new life for themselves with nothing, building up a business from nothing. I mean, that takes balls, especially if you don't speak. My dad speaks uh, quite sort of good English, but he just didn't really like speaking to his kids. But he could speak English and get things done, you know. But my mum didn't speak English. My mum... She once told me that she's got like seven younger brothers and sisters and she left school at 13 to stay at home and look after them. So her education got cut short. My dad, I think, went on to higher education. See, I'm really sorry I'm so vague about all this, but I really don't know much about my my parents' history at all. So they didn't really... I don't don't know what my dad's reason was for it, but my mum didn't really regard education as being very important for us at all. That was quite difficult. We just basically had to knuckle down and and, uh, make sure that we got out of the takeaway business and and succeeded and and made a success of our lives on our own, really. That's that's so interesting because out of all the people I've talked to who worked in takeaways, their parents were trying their best, sacrificing their time and hard work to give their children better opportunities to break out of that cycle, that immigrant cycle, and to join the let's say at least middle class you know profession such as maybe nurse or or accountant or Mm. stuff like that just just at least something to break out of that cycle because our our parents knew how hard it was being immigrants in this country yeah i mean i hear that all the time from um british chinese about how their parents sort of jumped jumped into them that they should get a better education and get better lives and then like, that's the other thing that then made me feel like I didn't belong because I'm like, why don't my why don't my parents do that with us? You know, why do we that we have to be the the odd ones out again? Um, so that didn't kind of um, it didn't sort of make sense to me at all. Yeah, you you worked in the takeaway when you were quite young, and then for a brief moment you stopped, and then you went back again. Uh, your mum gave you a job back again at 19 oh right yes that's right yeah yeah I mean you can imagine how desperate I was so so what happened was so Chinglish finishes when I'm 16 17 leaving home because I I don't want to do any spoilers here but I I end up um, leaving and going to London but because I'd grown up in such 
a dysfunctional household with parents that didn't tell me anything and I hardly had any friends and the information that you got about survival in life back then was very limited. I read Jackie magazine and got the agony aunt sort of columns out of there. We also had the Sun newspaper. I think it was Dear Deirdre or something. I used to read the agony aunt columns in that. But there was nobody you could turn to for advice. So I went to London being absolutely the most naive person you could think of. And then nobody told me about um, drugs and drink and contraception and stuff. I managed to get pregnant. So I was sort of in the middle of, I think I'd just finished my studies. And then I thought to myself, well, I better tell mum what's happened. And her reaction wasn't really a surprise. She told me to either have an abortion or just never um, set foot in the house again. So I just never set foot in the house again because um, that suited me. (laughs) And uh, I then, through certain circumstances, um, I won't tell you all the details because I think it's going into the sequel of Chinglish, I ended up living in a squat in King's Cross, pregnant. And I had no money or anything. I was literally looking in the gutter for pennies because I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. And then the authorities, thank God for the authorities, managed to find me some homeless accommodation, which started off as a bed and breakfast in Acton for homeless people and refugees and people like that. And then uh, after having the baby... I think because it was, I think it was not the done thing or was illegal or something like that to have a newborn baby in, in one of those accommodations. They found me a housing association flat in Shepherd's Bush. So I was, we were on benefits. Didn't have any baby clothes or anything. So I tell you what, there's so many charities and organisations out there that help people that just, they are unsung heroes because we didn't have any baby clothes or equipment or anything. They came over with bagfuls of baby clothes and nappies and all that kind of stuff. We didn't have a cot still, so my baby actually slept in the bottom drawer of a, a chest of drawers that we pulled out. So he, at the end of the day, how are they going to know what they're sleeping in? As long as it's got a few sides on it that he keeps a draft out. So we were dirt poor. And then my mum came to see the baby with my little sister And she, because we were so desperate at that point, she um, persuaded us to go back to the takeaway where there was going to be a roof over our heads and we were going to get paid for doing work. And we were like, yeah, we just, um, we jumped at it really because our situation was quite dire. Uh, Went back to live with my parents, me, the baby and the baby's dad. And it was such a bad idea really because... I guess my desperation kind of overrided the, um, the, the, the awfulness that potentially could happen. I kind of uh, erased that from my mind. But w- within a few weeks, my baby's dad caught my dad beating my little sister up in the storeroom. And so he punched my dad and then we were kicked out and we were homeless again. So this is when I then moved up north which is where my son's dad originally came from. And we ended up being housed by the council. We were like priority because um, we'd moved into my into my son's dad's mum's, so his grandma's prefab bungalow, which was tiny. And we were all sleeping on the living room floor and she was disabled as well. And um, the council came over 
to do an evaluation and they put us straight at the top of the list saying you can't you've got a newborn baby you're sleeping on the floor so then they they we got a council house and we we lived on the council estate for um for, uh, I, I lived on it for about seven years seven or eight years until I then relocated down to London things just kind of like got worse and worse and worse and worse and eventually I left home I actually left my son with his dad so he became a single dad and I went to um, live and work down London because I knew that if I'd stayed there my life would have just gone just carried on going downhill and I had so much more kind of ambition and drive in me that that place would never give me and I had to make that sacrifice I had to move in order to better myself and remove myself from people who I just knew weren't doing me any good because they were all taking drugs and I just knew that it wasn't where I should be because if I did I would just get worse and worse and just get more deeply involved in that whole drug scene and just probably end up in not a very good place to be honest so I I had to make that move yeah did I go off on a tangent there (laughs) No, 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 of course not. No. Well, thank you so much for being honest. That's, I'm really grateful. And yeah, welcome. um, Yeah. Thank you for telling us a story. When you say you left to London, were you still in contact with, you know, your husband and your... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was still paying for everything. I was paying for the rent, the bills, some of the food, uniforms, you know, so I was still kind of helping out financially. And I was still in touch with my son. Um, but I just wasn't seeing him as regularly as as I wanted to. Society has sort of not normalised, but tolerated the husband going off for work. Is uh, people don't really seem to bat an eyelid at that, but when it's the other way around, people sort of go crazy at it. Yeah. But, you know, given your situation, I, I I think it's probably the best was the best option to do at that time. Did you have doubts about doing that, or did you? Given the situation, was that the only option? It was the most heart-wrenching, darkest sort of moment in my life. It was like having to make that decision was just the worst thing I've ever ever had to do. But I just knew I had to do it because I just knew that if I didn't, something awful was going to happen. If I'd had stayed, I would have been just miserable anyway. And, And then everyone around me would have been miserable. But I, I knew from the people that I was hanging around with that it wasn't just going to be misery. It was going to be... I mean, there was people dying around me from drugs, from overdosing. So I just, I just had to make... I just had to change things. When you're in that kind of deep hole, the fact that you want to change things doesn't come from an intellectual space. It comes from a place of absolute and utter desperation with nowhere else to turn. And so you're almost forced to do it because there is no other way. So that's where I was. So it was like a, a strong gut instinct to do it. it was, there's no thinking behind it. You just knew you had to do it. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's, that's very admirable. That's really, seriously. Yeah, I didn't think that at the time. I just thought to myself, I've got to do something. I've got to do it now. And this is the thing that is possible for me right now. And, and I'm not even thinking about any further than this. I'm just thinking about the next step. I don't know where the next step's going to take me after that, but I just need to do something. Because I think when, you're, when your brain is sort of wired in survival, you, you don't think about five steps ahead. You just think about the next step. What's the yes. vital next step to, to get into a safe position? Yeah. yeah. That's totally understandable. Sorry to just to drag it back 
into the conversation again. But um, the second time you went back in a takeaway, yeah, did you ever think that what your, what your parents said about the takeaway being yours was going to come true? That it was going to be yours after the second time? Because when I was quite young, I had the same situation. You know, I, what if I don't get a job? What if I'm stuck here forever and I <laughs> inherit this place from my father? And that you know, it keeps me up at night even oh, now no. because I know. They've given me so many opportunities to to better myself, to have a better education. And what if what if those opportunities don't lead to anything good? What if I'm stuck here, you know, cooking fried rice every day, <laughs> where where I could where I could have been something else? I have to first of all, I have to say, even though there's been a lot of people contacting me about the harrowing side of life in a takeaway, there's been quite a lot of people also have told me how much they enjoy having taken over their parents' business. And they, they enjoyed um, actually running a takeaway, and which is absolutely great because we need to hear these things. You know, it can't just be like misery. But I was always determined, absolutely 100%, never ever to take, away, take uh, over the business just because, of the, just because of the associations it had with everything else, which was my parents' being abusive and just having the worst time of it just just from being treated terribly by my parents Um, and so so the takeaway always had those negative associations for me being in a takeaway meant being called worthless and and you know useless and stupid and being made to work against your will at all hours even during school days being made to serve the customers who were, you know, a lot of them were drunk at the weekends coming in and calling us chinky and pulling up floor tiles and throwing them at us, breaking out into fist fights where there was just blood everywhere, me having to call the police, my uncle chasing them out with a meat cleaver down the street. Yes, I know it sounds really comical, but at the time I was just so mortified because I was like, what if the kids found out at school? Oh my God, I'm going to be slated for this. I'm already being bullied, but this is just going to make it so much worse. So all of those things made me never, ever want to take over the business. So I knew absolutely for sure about about that. So there's a very, very strong motivation. To yes, and, yes. And I would do anything I could to make sure that did not happen. Those things that you mentioned are very traumatic for a child growing up yeah <laughs> yeah totally and the, these sort of traumas stay with you for quite a long time they do and they, and they bleed into changing your attitude and behavior when you're a grown-up too they do but at the same time you know you've got i try and look at the positives as well so for instance all the sort of like the customer facing having to deal with problematic people hey you know in the real life world <laughs> It's, it's kind of like made me have this thicker skin for people who, who normally I wouldn't be tolerated. And, and it's given me more of an, under, you know, it's made me want to understand these people more as well and how to deal with them. Like they haven't, they're not like that for nothing. They're like that because they've gone through traumatic experiences themselves. It's made me more understanding about them. And, you know, whenever I come across anyone who's a little bit not a desirable person, I kind of get it because I've been kind of uh, conditioned when I was younger to, to sort of like deal with these people. And so they don't affect me as much. I can just uh, shrug them off 
I can have a better understanding of them, why they are, why they are. And I can, it's easier for me to just turn away from them and walk off, walk away, even if they are really close friends or family. Because I ain't dealing with, I, you know, I'm, I, I ain't dealing with the shit, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it's put me in a position where I, I'm quite sort of, um, I, I know exactly where I stand with them. They don't scare me. And that's come from your experience of working in the environment that you worked in when you were quite young. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I've been giving this a lot of thought because I agree with what you said about being able to deal with difficult people in real life because of the intensity of working at a takeaway being, you know, quite young, 15, 16. You know, with the takeaway, the social dynamic between you as a person working there and with the adult on the other side who's being quite abusive and being quite unreasonable, it's already unfair anyway because as a business you have to treat the customer no matter how unreasonable, how unappealing they are with their demands, you just have to appease to them mm. and try to keep yeah. their, their business. But in real life, you're on a level playing field. Yes. There's no, there's, there's no, there's not that dynamic anymore. So you're able to draw that intense experience from when you're younger and be even stronger in real life and to deal with people yeah. in real life. In, but you've got to remember all those people that still got businesses <laughs> are still having space customers. That's still that's going so, on. Oh my God, that's still going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're always going to get idiots in life and you're always going to have to deal with them. So it's the way that you process that. So it's you, you have to, you are the person that has to change because there's always going to be idiots out there and you're always going to have to come (laughs) across them and they're always going to give you crap. So it's up to you to be able to process that in a way that you just, you know, don't care anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't, it's just not that important. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. There's always going to be idiots out there. Yes. <laughs> you, you, that has to change. Yeah, yes. absolutely. You mentioned in another interview that you've never been to Hong Kong, but you want to go. Is that still true to this day, that you've never been to Hong Kong? It is. And um, have you been to Hong Kong? Uh, several times, yeah. Oh, have you? Right, so I have been asked if I wanted to go when I was younger, like with the family and stuff. And um, A, I didn't want to because I was so embarrassed about being seen out with my family. <laughs> I don't know, do you remember that book, uh, scene in Chinglish where my mum takes us out for my little sister's birthday to McDonald's for the f- like, first time yes. ever? <laughs> yes, I do remember. <laughs> and there's a few other sort of family friends with us. And she took her shoe off and put her foot on the table in McDonald's and pointed at her foot and went... Look at my bunion in Chinese, but still. And it was those sort of moments that just made us just so cringe at our parents the whole time and never want to be seen in public with them ever. So there's that reason why we didn't want to go <laughs> to Hong Kong with them. And uh, the other reason was um, because I just didn't feel like culturally, I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't know anything about it. And oh, there is a third thing it was the Chinese side of myself when I was growing up that gave me the most grief. You know, being, people being racist at me, not fitting in at school, not looking right, not looking Western, when I just wanted to look like Madonna. But I tried to bleach my hair and it just turned out ginger. <laughs> and, um, oh, there was once when I actually backcombed my hair and I went down, you know, back in the 80s when your hair was quite big and um, backcombed my hair really big, sprayed it all, went downstairs and my mum just went... Your hair looks like a chicken's ass, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I just never... Because I thought I looked really cool. 
Uh, and but my and then my mum said that, and I was like, right, okay. Well, look, it was just always a sense of never belonging. So, oh, sorry, I went off on one again there. So yeah, not not actually identifying with anything that was Chinese. So I felt completely out of place. Why would I want to go to Hong Kong? Can't speak the language or anything. Don't know anything about. You know, my cousins knew about thing. You know, Chinese films. They spoke quite fluent Cantonese. They could converse with their parents. They listened to Cantonese songs. You know, they did Chinese. Things like they had the the um, autumn festival where they you like the joysticks and all this kind of thing, but we didn't do any of that, and so Hong Kong to me was was as sort of far removed as anywhere else. Really, it was just I didn't feel any kind of connection to it at all. So I didn't really want to go up until just very very recently, within the last year, because of. All these people from the Chinese community connecting to me, I, I kind of started embracing the whole Chinese thing, <laughs> and I, I kind of uh, started looking at all the Facebook forums and things like that as well, just sort of hovering on the sidelines and never really joining in because I always felt like I wasn't Chinese enough, because I'd see all these posts about, oh yeah, have you watched this um, Chinese series and have you heard this Chinese song and who knows about this Chinese ingredient for this Chinese food. <laughs> And I'm like, oh God, I don't know any of that. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sort of sit, watch, and learn, sort of thing. And then I think I I posted about my book, and then I posted something about, you know, regretting never being able to speak Chinese because my parents never taught us. They spoke Hakka at home as well, and whereas all my, all their friends and family spoke Cantonese, so when they came over, they just spoke in Cantonese. So not only did I hardly know any Hakka. I could not understand anybody who spoke Cantonese, and they used to deride us for it as well. And we'd be like, "Well, you didn't teach us," so we felt even more like idiots because they were, you know, taking the mick out of us for not being able to speak Chinese when we didn't get taught it. I think my parents just expected us to just suddenly be fluent on our own without conversing with us. The only things I knew and still know are all the menu items in Hakka, which doesn't really get you far if you want to go to Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I've just started kind of slowly getting used to the whole Chinese thing because I just it, it was just something that was so far removed from me. And I actually was interviewed for another podcast where the host actually said something that was made me think, oh my god, it just made me feel so much better. She was saying that on the scale of being. A British Chinese person from naught to hundred, not being you don't know anything about Chinese culture, you can't speak the language or anything like that, to a hundred where you know everything. You can fit anywhere on that scale as a British Chinese and be perfectly accepted. Where I did not know that. I thought you had to be a <laughs> hundred. Do you know what I mean? I always yeah. grew up thinking that you had to be a hundred on that scale, and I was always zero, and so I would never. Fit into being a British, proper British Chinese person. So I always shied away from it, and I always try to integrate with Western instead. I always try to be more Western, and it, it's mm. never until, and it's always until somebody at works reminds you that you're Chinese that you remember that you're Chinese, and you're like, God damn it! You just reminded me that I'm Chinese <laughs> when I was trying to be Western. So, um, oh, it's just so confusing, isn't it? So confusing. Yeah. So I would love to go to Hong Kong. Going back to your question. Love to because I'm completely on it now. I'm totally on board. That's really nice to hear. 
okay there's so many things i want to want to ask you about from that okay all right <laughs> okay go so for I'm it going to backtrack slightly yeah slightly to the beginning of um when you started answering the question you mentioned the passage in your book where your your parents take you to mcdonald's yeah <laughs> and that moment that moment of your, your your mother taking off her shoe and her socks and has that instant or any other instance similar to that influenced the way you are with your own your own son what you mean like taking my shoe off him at <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of, sort of that experience, and you, you know um, that, that experience, and then has that influenced how you are with your own son as a parent? Yes, it has, but it's not always worked. So, for instance, um, I've always wanted to try not to be like my parents in that regard. <laughs> but because I grew up in that environment, and you learn from your parents, and you, it, it kind of gets ingrained into you that this kind of behavior is normal you sometimes forget that when you're out in the open world you do things and you forget that that it's not normal it's not normal <laughs> like I don't know I can't think of any like oh I can but they're so embarrassing I can't even tell you where my, <laughs> my where my son's been embarrassed about me because I've done something that my mum would have done and then I'm like oh god I mean I have caught myself which is really, I've had to nip it in the bud very quickly, burping audibly in public. Because <laughs> that's something that my mum does all of the time. And I've started finding myself doing it. And I'm like, no, that is not acceptable. So I've had to stop that. <laughs> things yeah. like that. Because, because you grow up in an environment where you see and hear all these things all the time. And so you think that they're normal takes you a long it doesn't go away overnight because because you've grown up with them do you know what I mean so I am very aware of trying to appear normal and sensible with my son he knows what I'm like though he knows I'm a little bit crazy (laughs) so he takes it with a pinch of salt but I do go I do cross the line sometimes and he'll tell me you're so right though growing up we you know install it in our unconscious behavior we we do it without realizing that's why not fear but think about sometimes is when I have children of my own how similar will I be to my own parents in the way they raised me for instance but the thing I would change though would be to encourage openness to my children and knowing that what they're going through is something I went through too which is something I never had and I always I always wonder how my kids would turn out when they get to my age would they have a better relationship with their parents would they be more open would they be more sociable yeah I mean I totally I'm totally with you there. There, there, there. Yes, there's definitely a lot of things that I teach my son that I didn't get, which is one of them, like you say, is that, that being open and honest, being yourself. And I encourage him to do whatever that he wants to do in life, which has turned out well because he's actually a musician and that's what he's always wanted to do. And uh, just to kind of talk to him as an equal human being, really, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and treat treat people kindly just everything that went wrong in my childhood to kind of try and correct that with him but I've had this a lot with um the British Chinese that have been getting in touch with me about their takeaway childhoods and how they're changing things that they're breaking the cycle with their kids now which is really good to hear so they're Mm. aware of it too and they now are trying to correct it that's that's really good yeah to sort of break out that cycle yeah that's good to hear yeah, I I don't want you, you know, for speaking for your son, but is he quite interested in getting to know his Chinese lineage? Is he sort of asking questions about that or not really? He isn't really, no. 
No, I think it's kind of, I think it disappeared with me. I think it was so, like, that, that whole cultural bond with me and my parents, was it was so drastically not there that I haven't had anything to pass down to my own son. I mean, I'm only just rediscovering it myself at the age of 50. <laughs> I mean, if he asks questions later on in life, then yes, I'll answer them, but I'm afraid that I may not have much knowledge to give him, to pass down even, which is, it is a real shame, but I don't blame myself for that. Don't really blame my parents either, because I realise now that they could only do what they could do given their past experiences back then. I didn't realise that back then, obviously, because when you're a kid, you don't. You're just like, why is life so unfair? I hate them. But as an adult, you kind of analyse it all a little bit more and you're a little bit wiser and you just think, God, you know, they must have had a really shit time too. If they behave like that towards us, what kind of an upbringing must they have have had to not actually even want to communicate with us in any way, shape or form? Hmm. I mean, I I think... think I was just going to say, I think our experiences were quite extreme, though, I'd hmm. say. I think there's an opportunity, if I may say, like a very beautiful opportunity for you and your son to discover things together at the same time and have equal freshness to, to how you look at your cultural you know, lineage. So I think that's a, an equally beautiful opportunity. It would. And I'd, I'd love to all, you know, when I go to Hong Kong, take him with me so that we can discover it all both together. That would be, That'd be brilliant. amazing. In fact, I'm going to write that down right now and put it on the top of my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, that, that'd be such a wonderful experience and I'm sure it'll be something that he'll remember for quite a long time. It would. To discover his culture yeah. um, for the first time with his, with his mother. So, yeah, and stuff yeah. our faces with delicious food together too. Yeah. <laughs> That's a real kind of like a, a bonding thing, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just and a final question, just to wrap it up. Is there one thing you could say to your son now that you wish someone said to you that when you were growing up? Or what would you say to your son? What would I say to him now, as, a, as him as a 30-year-old? So if I was to... I would say to him that... Um, I mean, he's a lot more well-balanced and brighter than I was when I was a kid. If I had said this to him at that age, I don't think I would have got it, really. So I would say... You are in charge of you, as in you can't rely on others or external circumstances to make the life you want it. You've got ultimately everything is up to you. It's so empowering and it actually took me a long time to figure this out that, you know, you could just be waiting forever for things outside of yourself to change so that then your life could improve. It doesn't work that way. It works the other way. You have to do things for yourself first. For then, you, for then you to see improvements around you. So that's what I would say. Oh, can I just add a little bit extra, if that's all right? Because I, I was just, I'm always a bit conscious that um, talking about Chinglish is always sort of all doom and gloom, when it's actually not. Because I, my whole way of dealing with life back then, and still really to some extent now, is to use humour as a, as a coping mechanism. And, um, and so Chinglish is predominantly humour. It's dark humour, but it's very funny. Because I always like to see the, the lighter side of life. And I just think that, especially these days, especially with young people, that everything is so serious. And I think they forget every now and again just to enjoy themselves and um, see the lighter and the funnier moments in life. Chinglish also talks about things like, you know, friendships, true friendships and 
and freedom and ambition and hopes and dreams. I just thought I'd, I'd add that bit in there as well because I, I didn't want Chinglish to sound like some kind of misery memoir. Yeah, so that's all I had to add, really. Thank you very much. And we look forward to more projects from you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Me too. So that is the end of episode 16. Over the past few weeks, I've listened to many interviews and podcasts that Sue has done since the launch of Chinglish. And I've always, always wanted to speak to her about her life and her work. So this episode was a lot of fun to do. I hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as I had producing it. So we wish you the best of luck in your next book launch in August and your TV adaptation. You are doing revolutionary things for the East Asian community. So onwards and upwards. Episode 17 is coming out for you next week. So please look out for that. And as always, thanks for listening and we'll talk next time.